Father, precious Lord Jesus, we have just sung to you a song that acknowledges that we are incapable in and of ourselves to live the life you want us to live, to be the people you want us to be, that everything we have and everything we owe is to you. Lord Jesus, you said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we're here in dependency upon you. We, we come week in and week out because we need to be here with you, with your people, sitting under your word, being encouraged. We thank you for your presence here. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, guide and direct uh, our paths our life, that you would fill us and use us, that we would be the people that you want us to be. To the glory of God, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, just, uh, just a note that's in the bulletin. Um, video volunteers. We want to do more with video. And if this is something that would be of interest to you, um, we can talk about training and, and involvement. So if this, is, uh, if this would be something that would be of interest, uh, contact uh, Chris in our office, and uh, we would be happy to talk to you about uh, the kind of things that uh, we can do. Well, I think uh, probably all of us enjoy a good story, right? Yes, and, and I don't know, a good story can be so riveting, it, it, it can hold you kind of spellbound, and it can get your heart beating with, with excitement and fear and emotion sometimes and being moved to tears or exploding with laughter or experiencing extreme anger. Something is unjust and it moves us in that way. Well, uh, to be exposed to a good story, I don't know about you, but we find ourselves often identifying with characters in the story, right? And uh, sometimes, you know, we, we see ourselves as, as the superhero or we see ourselves as, as the person who's, uh, who's just uh, really struggling and we identify with that person because we feel like we're struggling and, and we, we feel their pain and their hurt. We celebrate their victories and uh, we can get caught up in almost like living vicariously through others in that way. Um, I remember, I remember as, a, as a little kid seeing Julie Andrews. I, I was in love with Julie Andrews. <laughs> Doe a deer, a female deer, and all that. You know, but you get into the story and you live the story. Did you know that God loves stories? Did you know that Jesus Christ is actually a master storyteller? And did you know that 40% of the Old Testament is story or narrative? And uh, so uh, God has a story. And that story we are invited to be a part of. Now it's interesting, we said that a great portion of the Bible is story or narrative. In fact, about two-thirds of the whole Bible is written in the literary genre of narrative or story. And um, it, it's interesting because uh, when I say story, 
I mean this, that God has chosen to communicate through historical events in the recording of these things. Story doesn't necessarily mean fiction in this case. It's not like made-up stuff, although the odd time Jesus would, uh, would make up a story to tell to help his hearers understand what he was talking about. But it's talking about recording of events in history as a means of God revealing himself and his plan and his desire for us and illustrating uh, what is directly taught in the Bible. So uh, in the law, he tells us what to do and what not to do. And then beyond that, um, he fleshes that out oftentimes with accounts. Um, And and much of Israel's history is a fleshing out of those Old Testament key passages. Now, what God did in the Old Testament was he gave the law. And, and, um, and then he also, uh, when, when we think back to the Israel story, God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them to the promised land, but Moses couldn't go into the promised land because he had sinned. And uh, so they were there, and Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy for them to prepare them for going into the land, what God wanted of them, what they had to do. And it's interesting that in what he wrote, um, in Deuteronomy 28, really gives kind of direction to the history of all of Israel through the historical books in the, uh, in the Old Testament. In, in Deuteronomy 28, God has given through Moses the law, and then he says, now, I want you to tell the people that if they follow the law, they'll be blessed. And if they fail to follow the law, and they reject my law, and they turn their back on me, there'll be curses. And so as we go from the end of Deuteronomy into Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, what we see is the ups and downs of God's promise. I will bless you if you live according to the way I, I share with you. And, and if you fail to do that, um, it'll, it'll end poorly for you. And so we get to the very end of, first, of Second Kings in this whole historical sketch. And we find Israel. Um, Jerusalem is destroyed. They've been carried off into captivity into Babylon. And that's exactly what God said he would do. And so we watch the ups and downs of, of Israel and, and what has happened. And um, when, we, when we come to where we're going today, um, we, we find out that this isn't just a recording of history. This isn't just a historical account. This is really preaching through story, through events, through what happens. The narrative or the story sections of the Bible are really like sermons for us to teach us. The thing is that they teach us not in a very uh, forward way. Um, you know, when, when David uh, slept with Bathsheba, God didn't say, David, this is wrong. It's understood it was wrong. And now he shows the outworking of all of those kinds of things. So we've been given that as revelation to help us understand. And we call the section of the Bible from Joshua to, uh, to Chronicles in, in our English Bible, we call it the, the historical books of the Old Testament. But the Hebrews didn't call it that. The Hebrews called the, those co- that collection of books from uh, uh, Joshua to 2 Kings, they called them the former prophets. 
He's going, wait a minute, they're telling stories. What do you mean prophets? It means this, that God had a message for his people through the recording of this history, and they were to learn things, and they were to be warned about things and encouraged and all the rest of that kind of thing. It was history that preaches and reveals God and reveals his purpose and his plan for us. So that in uh, uh, Romans 15, we have this. Everything that was written in the past, that's the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through the endurance, uh, through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so all of the Old Testament with his stories prompt us to learn what God has for us. Now we're going to be looking over the next number of weeks at the life of King David. And uh, we said before in the, in the series of messages on the Bible, part of what we want to do as when, when we share from Scripture is help you to understand how to understand the Bible. And so we've got this huge chunk, about three-quarters of the Bible is written in, in uh, a literary style of story or narrative. And so as we go through, we hope that you'll pick up some things about how to read and understand narrative and apply it in a good way. Uh, but I, you, you need to know that some of this material that we're going to go through is reputed to be among the finest literature, narrative literature, in the whole ancient world. And so I want to encourage you to read. Um, we'll be working through First and Second Samuel. But if you want more of the story, start in Joshua. Joshua takes us from the place where, where God uh, has brought them to the, the edge of the Jordan River. Uh, they've received the final words of, of encouragement and warning from Moses. And then they'll head into the land. And that starts with Joshua. And then we have 400 years that are really not good years in Israel's history. The period of the judges. And then we've got... Uh, a whole new thing. The last judge was Samuel, and now we have this whole new starting with uh, a king and what it will mean for them to have a king. So my, my encouragement to you is sit down, get a cup of tea, curl up on the couch, and read it like literature and allow God to speak to your heart through it. It's, it's a page-turner when you get going. And, and so my encouragement is to do that and allow God to speak to you through this. So we're looking uh, for God to instruct us and to guide us and to teach us to trust him and to encourage us and to correct us when we need it. And we're going to do this as we follow through the life of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. Now, God is writing a story. God has a story. It's a huge story. It's a story that every other story is incorporated into. And um, in that story, in that big story, it goes in a, a movement. God's big story starts with creation. He tells us how he created and why he created. We get a sense of who we are and what God has called us to. Sadly, after that, this movement in God's big story is there is a rebellion by humanity who fail to, to do what God asked them to do. And there's this fall and the, 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 the consequences of the fall were dire. They t- 
touched every part of life in our planet. It, it touched us in every way in our person, in, in the, uh, everything from weather patterns uh, to animal life. Uh, all of those things have been terribly, terribly affected by that. And in God's story, the, we see the effects of the rebellion and all the kinds of terrible things that we do to each other that continue to this day. But beyond that, God had a redemptive part. God had something good. God had something in which he could fix and take care of the terrible things that we have gone through and, and what has been broken and how to reconcile us to God and, and how to make that relationship right and how to, uh, how to fix us that we can be forgiven also. And then there's a final movement in this God's huge story, and it's this new heavens and new earth, and how God has promised something in the future where it's kind of like back to the future, what God had attended, intended for us originally, we will find, finally realize fully. And we're all a part of God's story. Now, you can be a part of God's story um, by honoring Him and, and following Him and obeying Him and loving Him. Um, but you can also find yourself in God's story as somebody who is disavowing Him or hating Him or rebelling against Him and not living for Him. All of us are in God's story. All of us will relate to God ultimately in our, in our story. Now Moses would die and he would not, be, uh, not enter into the promised land because of his disobedience and he's succeeded by Joshua uh, who led them into the land and they subdued the land and everything God had promised them some 400 years before that was now being realized. And uh, this great conquest after the death of, of Joshua, we, see, we read the very disappointing news uh, that another generation came along that didn't know the Lord. Isn't that incredible? You know, so we, we talk a lot about our children here and our desire for our children. We, we have a responsibility to hand the faith from generation to generation to generation to generation. And, and uh, the sad statement in, in Judges 2 is that after Joshua and all the elders of his age passed off the scene, there was another generation that did not know the Lord. Oh, that God would help us. Well, that's why our children's program is so keen. That's why I, I said the best thing we can do for your family is help you to follow Christ and help you to convey your faith to your own children. Would that God would, uh, would do that for us. And so what would happen in this period of the judges? Um, Israel would rebel and God would bring judgment on them from their neighbors who would come and, and uh, attack them and take their, uh, take their produce and all of that kind of thing. And they would cry out to the Lord. And God would send them a judge who would lead them and, uh, and bring them out of that terrible state of judgment. And then this thing was just cyclical. And when you read the book of Judges, you kind of get frustrated. Go, what's wrong with these people? It just goes around and around and around. They rebel and, and terrible things happen. And they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends them a judge. And they do this like for 400 years. And they come to this conclusion that we've got a problem here. And what we need to solve this problem is we need a king. If we had a king, we could solve this, this issue and this problem. And uh, what happens is... Um, they're looking for a king like all the other nations. 
The other nations have kings. We need a king. We need somebody who will go out with us. And, uh, and it's interesting, at the end of the book of Judges, you read in two places, in the last couple chapters of Judges, and there was no king in Israel. There was no king. And their thought is this. If, if we're going to make it, we need a king like all the other nations have. And so uh, what we find is this. When Samuel grew old, he was the last of the... Uh, he was the last of the judges. When he grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But, this did not fall, but the sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, perverted judgment, justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. We want to be like the other nations. Our problem is we need a king. We don't have a king. Well, to say that to Joshua or or to uh, Samuel, Samuel was distraught when they said this. Uh, he, he He couldn't believe it because God was their king. It was God who led them. It was God who raised up the judges. It was God who brought them out of, out of uh, Egypt and provided for them and, and gave them victory over their enemies. And God wasn't happy with it either. Uh, they were looking for a military leader they could look to, somebody who was big and strong and handsome and tactical and, and could. That's what they wanted. That's what they were looking for. And both God and Samuel found that extremely offensive. Uh, Hadn't God protected them? How did God bring them out of one of the the greatest uh, civilizations and empires of their age, the Egyptian empire, and and they were ready to run them down, this, this host of some million and a half or two million people? God protected them. God protected them as they went into the land against the Amalekites and the Amorites and all of these different ones. And when they went into the land, wasn't it God who gave them victory over the whole land? But their desire was to be like all other nations, and they failed to appreciate who God was and that distinctiveness. And Samuel warned them, look it, if you get a king, you need to know what a king is going to do to you. He's going to conscript your kids and put them in his army. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to make slaves of them. He's going to take their produce uh, and, and make them work in agriculture and in, in all the things that he wants. He'll take your daughters by force and he'll make them perfumers and all of this kind of thing. And, and he will tax you. He'll confiscate what you have. He'll take your, your livestock and, and all of these things. And you'll cry out for help uh, because of your king. And they refused to listen to him. No, we want a king. And you see, even though the Israelite leaders were so wrong, God had already planned that they would have a king. And in the passage that uh, we, we had read for us by Will this morning in Deuteronomy 17, we have God instructing what the king was supposed to be like and and how you got a king and all the rest of those things. God had planned to have a king, but a king of his design, not after the godless nations around them. And so in Deuteronomy 17, we find out that God says this. Now, when you get a king, this is what you need to do. First off, 
you, this is the kind of king that God wanted them to have. First, it was God's choice. You need to seek God. You don't need to, to do... You know, sometimes we look with human eyes and we say, um, here's what we think for leaders in our church. You know, uh, I know some churches find people who've made it in business or something and said, no, that's... A, no, he says you need to find God's choice. And sometimes God's choice may not be what you would, would recognize right away. He's got to be a person who is a fellow Israelite. You don't bring a foreigner in as God's people to lead God's people. They weren't to amass numbers of horses. In those days, you had beasts of burden. You plowed with oxen and, and, and donkeys and things like that. Horses were something that you didn't really do that kind of thing with. Horses were relegated to war. And so he says, don't go back to Egypt. Egypt had all kinds of horses. Remember them chasing and running down the Israelites? Don't, go, don't have a king that's going to build a, 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 a whole art, artillery with, with horses and chariots and that kind of thing. Um, he says, don't get a, a, a king that will take many foreign wives on. So what you would do is you would have... A, very strategic relationship. So you'd say, uh, I've got uh, another nation here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my son marry his daughter so we have an alliance, an allegiance. So they won't come and, they won't come and uh, attack me because their daughter is here. Um, Solomon blew that one to pieces. 700 wives, 300 concubines. He's not obeying what God said. Don't take many foreign wives. Don't accumulate great amounts of wealth for yourself. And somebody who possesses and submits himself to the law of God. Remember he told her what to do? When you come, you take a scroll and you write the law. He'd be talking about Deuteronomy. You write out Deuteronomy, word for word in the scroll, and you live by that every day. It's something that you submit yourself uh, to, the, to the priests and to the word of God. You're not above it. See, with, with, with kingship in that day, you did whatever you wanted. You were the law. And he says, no, you're not the law. God has the law. And you submit yourself to him. And, and so this is the kind of king that wasn't the, what, what all the other nations had. This is not the... And, and he wasn't... Uh, there's one more thing here. He, he was uh, not to be proud or having an attitude of superiority. Don't think of yourself as be- better than your subjects. You're just a person that was selected for a task. And so God had this idea in kingship that it would be kind of a co-regency. God was king, and he worked through a... Uh, a uh, person who would be his representative on earth to lead them and guide them and God granted them that wish and the king they got was interesting they wanted somebody that fulfilled those things and so God in a, in a certain sense gave them the kind of thing they want in in first Samuel uh, 9 we find out that God had chosen this man. He was a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, not a big tribe, but a, a notable tribe in the center of Israel. His dad was, and his family was a, a family of means, a family of standing. His father's name was Kish, and his son, a, a son of Abiel. 
and the son of Zeror, and the son of Benjamin. And he had a son named Saul. Impressive man. So he comes from a pretty good family, a family with a good representatives. I gotta have these fixed. Um, he was a picture of a leader. So when you looked at the crowd, you would say, he's our man. He was a head taller than everybody else. He stuck out. He was strong. He was young. He, he, he possessed what the, the very kind of thing that they wanted to have. He was impressive and strong and good-looking. He had it all together. And God sovereignly... Um, worked some, some uh, circumstances out so that he was sent out by his dad to look for, they had lost a whole pile of donkeys. And he said, take a servant and go and look for them. And uh, he went out and they couldn't find them and something happened that uh, the, the servant said, hey, I know that there is a prophet. He's talking about Samuel who lives in this area. Let's go see the prophet and see if he can tell us. And God said, this is the guy who you're to anoint as king. And, and so um, they, were, they were going, and Samuel says, look it, I need to talk to you. He anointed him with oil and said, you'll be Israel's first king. And uh, in fact, he, he gives him a whole pile of things to tell them what's going to happen. This is going to happen, you're going to go, and everything happens. And God's spirit comes on him. God gives him everything he will need to be the kind of leader that he wants him to need. And, and, and uh, they go, and they're, they're ready to anoint him. And they say, where is, where is he? Now they're going to do something very publicly. And they can't find him. And he's hiding among the luggage. And uh, this is your king. I mean, he's, now he looks like, you know, a giant baby or something like that. But God's spirit came upon him. And there were affirmations uh, and signs. God had given him what he would need. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And at the coronation, he's ready now to, be, to begin. And what happens was, he, went, he was told to go to Gilgal and to wait there for Samuel for seven days. Seven days, just wait for me. Don't go out because now the Philistines were perennial uh, problems for the Israelites. And they were threatening again. And God was going to send out his king to be, fulfill the role that they would do, is going and leading the army out against their enemies. And, uh, but he's to stay for seven days. Stay for seven days and wait. And God... Um, what, what happened was they're, they're waiting and they're waiting and Samuel's not coming and they're now at day seven and the other, the other group has amassed their troops. They have 3,000 chariots. Chariots. They have 6,000 chariot drivers. They had an army that was so big you couldn't count it. And here they are, and, and Saul's little army now is getting scared 
Um, here, here's the thing. Two people in Saul's army had weapons. Saul and his son Jonathan. What happened was the, uh, the Philistines were really good with, with, uh, with not only weapons, but, but with uh, machinery, with, with instruments. And they would go down and they would have them sharpen their sickles and their blades and their plows and all this kind of stuff. They had an army with two swords. And, uh, and so they're freaking out because they watch these come like locusts and, and ready for battle. And, and Samuel or, or, or Saul panics. And instead of waiting for Samuel to get there, to, to sacrifice to the Lord and to bless this endeavor, he takes it upon himself. Well, I'll just do it myself. So he does the sacrifice. Mm-mm, wrong, 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 wrong. And, and, and so what happens is he no sooner does this and Samuel shows up. What are you doing? And, and what happens there is, is that he, um, he now has disqualified himself. God said, you could have had somebody sitting on this throne in perpetuity forever and ever. But because you have done this, because you have disobeyed, um, uh, God is not going to do that. And, and, and so he showed himself to be disobe- uh, disobedient and untrusting. And um, God said that he had acted foolishly in that disobedience, and it would cost him. And God said he was going to seek a man after God's his own heart. Well, we go on to uh, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And uh, we find another occasion where God says, now I want you to go out. I remember what the Amorites did to you guys when you came here. And uh, I have held this, and now I'm going to judge them through you. And so they went out, and um, Saul was told they were to destroy everything. Everything was to be devoted to the Lord, and everything uh, was uh, to be destroyed. And Saul went out, and work this, uh, this great, great uh, victory. It's interesting. What happened in the last one, and I didn't tell you this, what happened in the last one? They didn't have all the, how did they have a victory? They had nothing. God put the fear of the Israelites in them. He shook the ground, and they started killing each other. And, and God said, God said, trust me. Don't trust the horses. I, I, I love how it's in the Psalms. Some trust in, in Horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what we'd always done, but now we got to do it like the other nations. God took care of them. And so go out, and I want you to exact justice on this nation, and I want you to obliterate it, and, and I want you to bring nothing back from there. So they come back with a victory, and Saul's feeling pretty good about himself, except here they are, and um, there's... Uh, there's the sound of sheep. There's the sound of cattle lowing. And so uh, he, he, he says to him, like, what, what's going on here? Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the cattle I hear? You said you've done everything that the Lord said. The Lord said, don't leave anything alive. 
Destroy everything. Now you've brought it, you've brought it back. What, what's the deal with that? Well, well he says, uh, you know, actually they were pressuring me because it was really good. And they said, we could sacrifice this to the Lord. And, and, and so he disobeyed. And he showed himself uh, to be uh, some, someone and something that he should never have been. He disobeyed the Lord. And here's what he shows himself to be. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel says. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom for all time. And then he goes on and he shows us this. He was disobedient. He was greedy. He was weak. He was pushed around by his men. He was unrepentant because he, he, he wouldn't admit that he had sinned at first. He wouldn't even do that. And God says in the final analysis, he's rejected. Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. A total failure. Here's this guy is going to rule. He's going to reign for 40 years. You say, I thought we were talking about David. We are talking about David because this all leads up to David. God, you see, was looking for a man after his own heart. God was looking for someone, the, the king after God's heart, that would, uh, he sought out a people, a man after God's own heart, and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the command of the Lord. It's interesting, we go to the New Testament, and uh, in, in, uh, in Acts 13, we, we find this reference again after removing Saul he made David their king God testified concerning him I found in David uh, I found David son of Jesse a man after my own heart he'll do everything I want him to do that's what God had for them and God chose wanted to choose people who would love him, who would obey him, who would follow his word, who would honor him, who would worship him. In the New Testament, Jesus said, what the fa- what's the Father looking for? He's looking for people who will seek, uh, he's seeking uh, people who will uh, uh, worship him in, in truth um, and, uh, and um, follow him with all of their life, spirit and truth. And because of that sin and brokenness and repentance, God is looking for people here. Listen, we may not be kings in that sense, but God is looking for people after his own heart. He's he's looking for people who will obey him. He's looking for people who will serve him. He's looking for people who will honor him and hold him up and love him and cling to him and trust him and believe in him. That's what he's looking for. So Israel kind of got the king they wanted. This big, tall, strapping, strong person. And he was rejected by God. And I think God was teaching them a lesson. And so he says to Saul, we need to anoint a new king. Even though he's going to go for years, God is going to anoint a new king, a a new future king who will be after his own heart. And he was sent to the family of Jesse in Bethlehem. Do some of these things ring a little familiar with you? God chose a son. There was, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting that Saul is, as Samuel is afraid, he's told to go 
to Jesse's house, and I want you to have a a sacrifice and a feast there, and I want you to bring his sons out. One of his sons is going to be the person. It's interesting that that uh, the first one, uh, the first son comes out, and uh, Eliab, and it's like a no-brainer. Look at this guy, the oldest son, strong, virile, good-looking. He's perfect, and God says, nah, "Don't look at him. I didn't choose him." And so they go Abinadab, and oh, this must be him. No, and Shammah, no, and they go through. They go through seven kids, and God says, no, 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 no. And he says, look it, have you not got any more kids? He's, he's confused at this point. What, what, what's happening here? And, and he says, um, well, there's, there's one, it's David, but he's, I mean, he's a, he's a kid. He's like a teenager. He's, a, he's, you know, his voice is changing. He's got pimples. Hello, have you got anybody else? We wouldn't even think of bringing him to the table. We said, we're not going to eat until you bring, and when you bring, and God says, that's the one. That's the one. Uh, See, what God is doing, God looks at the inward, not the outward appearance. That's what he said. He said, and when when you're looking for somebody, you're judging by outward standards. No, he says, that's not it. You need to judge by God, Uh, not by appearance, but by the things that you can't see. God looks at the heart. You know, I love in 1 Corinthians 1, um, God chose the foolish things to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the strong things, the lowly things. God chooses those things. He doesn't choose the way we choose, and he chose this guy named David. And uh, here he is. Um, You see, God made a promise to David in his life. He made a covenant with him. And that covenant is, David said, I want to build you a house. I don't feel good. I live in a palace and we have a tent that you're in. I want to build a temple for you. I want to build a house for you. And God says, no, you're not going to build a house for me. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to build a house for you. What are you talking about? I'm going to build a house for you that, that you're going to have someone who will sit on your throne of your progeny, of your offspring, eternally, forever and ever. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He goes on to say, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You know, God, I say God is writing a story. This story all comes home uh, to roost with us. Um, Folks who are serving can come up and and sit here and musicians can come up now. It reminds us of another king, an ultimate king. A king who will rule forever and ever and ever. Uh, Go to Jesse in Bethlehem. Do you remember somebody else that the prophet said, this person, this king, this future ruler is going to come and he'll come and be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Oh, though you're tiny Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler. Um, it's interesting. I love what Isaiah says. As if through the Old Testament, they bear witness to who this king will be. 
And in, in, we're at Christmas time now. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, and establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And now all of a sudden we're going back and we're going, oh, God promised that there would be an eternal king that would come. That would become, that would be Jesus, our Messiah. And I won't have time to read it for you, but if you go through um, in, in Acts chapter 15, we find out that that wasn't just for the Jews. In God's big story, he was opening his arms to the Gentiles and launching out in a worldwide um, uh, uh, presentation of his son, inviting us all to be there. And in history, we become a part of God's story. In fact, in our baptismal confession, we identify with Jesus in his story in such a way that we are... We die with him. We're buried with him and we're raised to newness of life and we walk with him. We're a part of his story. And that story as we begin to look at, at uh, David, a man after God's, God's own heart, and we see things that are so encouraging, but we also see some stuff, then we go, oh man, David, what were you thinking? We'll learn something about the story, the, the, how we are in God's story and how we can be people uh, after God's own heart. See, God is writing a history. And it begins, all the pieces begin to fall into place. Let me, let me just show you one, one more thing before we go on. Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. The son of David the son of Abraham, in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. We got a king. We got a king, and he's reigning, he's ruling, and uh, let me just... In the book of Revelation, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there, was a loud, there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of, the world, of this world, of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And so what, what a joy it is as we start this. As we look at David's life and realize that God chose a man after his own heart, not a perfect man as we'll see, and he made a promise that we would have forever a, uh, a king who would rule. We want to prepare our hearts for uh, communion. If you would just take a moment and um, bow your head and uh, examine your life. If there's something that you need to confess to the Lord and prepare our hearts. The Lord Jesus himself hosts this table, this gathering. He invites us to come and uh, to be a part of this. And uh, we made a pledge at our baptism that we would follow him all the days of our life. And we come to recall what he's done for us.